Hi, my name is Anita Johnson. Before we play our show, I wanted to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become a part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. And right now, your donation will be doubled by Newsmatch. So please just take a minute. Go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Making, making contact. Making, 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 making contact. Welcome to Making Contact. I'm Anita Johnson. This fall, we've been bringing you episodes from But Next Time, a limited-run podcast about community-led disaster prevention and recovery. What I like most about this series is that it centers the voices of people organizing on the ground with the intention of learning from the past in order to do things different next time. This week is all about aftermath of disasters. We'll meet organizers in Houston who take on landlords and city officials for families living in substandard housing. Here's Bud next time on Making Contact. When it rains, it pours through my living room windows, my kids' window. The mold is deep inside of the walls and people are extremely sick. Years later, they still have not repaired a lot of these homes. I'm Chriselle Pillay. Rose Arietta and I are your hosts for But Next Time, a podcast about the ways people tap into their resilience and organizing strength when catastrophe hits. I'm Rose. Chriselle and I met through a network of grassroots advocates working on issues of racial justice, housing, and land. For years, she and I have been on the front lines of crises that have threatened our communities in Texas and California. Disaster recovery is who gets to belong, who gets to remain, who gets to survive this disaster, and who gets to survive the next disaster, and how they get to survive it. Over the course of this series, we'll meet activists and organizers committed to building justice and a sustainable future, even as they deal with wildfires, earthquakes, flooding, and the pandemic. There's never a time where you can't use your voice. Your voice is your freedom. You're listening to But Next Time. In August of 2020, Rose and I spoke with my colleague in Houston, Zoe Middleton. All three of us work on housing justice in our cities, and we were catching up on what was happening six months into the pandemic. Rose and her neighbors in San Francisco were experiencing heavy smoke from the wildfires to the north, while Zoe and I were awaiting yet another tropical storm heading for the Gulf Coast. Right now, we're we're looking at two potential storms making landfall early next week. Zoe, I don't know about you, but I can't even wrap my head around this right now. A third and fourth disaster on top of the eviction crisis uh, since our courts have been open since mid-May and on top of COVID-19. We're not handling these two crises well. And then you have those who are still living in homes that have not been repaired since Harvey and these storms out there churning in the Gulf, bringing more vulnerability. It's just too much to even humanly handle. Mm -hmm. 
We were anxious about Hurricane Laura. It would sweep through the Caribbean and make landfall on the Gulf Coast a week later. It caused more than 40 deaths in the U.S. and almost $20 billion in damage in Louisiana and southeastern Texas. But on this call, our attention was focused on pressing for rent relief for people struggling to keep a roof over their heads during the pandemic. Houston has more than a million renters, so keeping those people housed would have an enormous impact on the health of our city. Zoe and I explained to Rose that we had been appointed to the city's Housing Stability Task Force. We created an ordinance that wasn't perfect, but it was definitely going to protect more people than no ordinance. What we wanted was a total ban on evictions. We came to the table knowing it would be a gamble, but we hoped the odds would favor the renters. We had never sat at a table like this before. Community advocates and Houston's politically powerful landlord lobby. When Houston's landlords pushed back, we knew we had to compromise. And the mayor has sole discussion to put something on the city council agenda. The mayor just buckled down and said, you know, it was really felt to be a crisis of leadership for him. I spoke with my city council member, Tarsha Jackson, about the mayor's decision. It went against the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control's advisory that landlords allow tenants to remain where they live during the pandemic. The mayor's reason was that the CDC has a moratorium, so can't nobody get evicted anyway. Do you know of particular cases of people here in the district that were evicted? Okay, yeah. We did. Yeah, we did go to an apartment complex over in Greenspoint where the lady called. We see that they have eviction notices on people's doors. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like it's like three-day vacate mm-hmm. notice. Uh-huh. So I asked the manager, I'm like, do people know that they don't have to move, that there's a moratorium on evictions? And mm-hmm. she was like, oh yeah, they know. But if you're telling me to vacate in three days and you're saying I need to pay this amount that I don't have, then you know people will get up and just leave because mm-hmm. they don't know. So people were self-evicting. They were self-evicting, yeah. So that way it didn't go yeah. to court. But right. at the end of the day, the landlord still got what they wanted. Right, right. And that's why we have to do a better job. It's the city's responsibility. It's the elected, our leadership responsibility to make sure that people know, mm-hmm. you know, that they're getting this information. What we witnessed was that the CDC moratorium did not stop most evictions in Houston. Zoe and others relied on data to publicize the constant stream of evictions, hundreds every week. Only 3% of the people going to court for eviction proceedings had any legal representation. There were tens of thousands of evictions filed in our county during the pandemic. The goal of a local ordinance was to strengthen the CDC moratorium, which we recognized wasn't strong enough. During these months, Rose was telling me that something really different was happening in parts of Northern California. She said at that time, in 2020, at the height of the pandemic, that some of the strongest eviction protections passed in San Francisco and Oakland. We have one of the strongest protections now in the country, but a lot of the counties outside of us are kind of screwed. They didn't wouldn't say no to eviction protection. It was people really bombarded their emails and their phones and were present at the hearing. People are really, really scared right now. The whole economy has kind of collapsed here and it's having a real impact. Looking back, the protections we were so proud of winning in San Francisco only went so far. When the weaker California moratorium went into effect, it preempted our local law. 
Meanwhile, as we worked on ways to prevent evictions and displacement in Houston, Zoe and I stayed connected with colleagues in Puerto Rico and the rest of the U.S. Zoe participated in an Encuentro, a webinar organized by Ayuda Legal, the organization Ariadna Goudreau headed. You met her in the previous episode. I see that there was a question in the chat. So Hilda asks in the chat, are some of the people that will be displaced Katrina refugees in Houston? Yes. In fact, one of the women that we worked with really closely on the apartment complex I mentioned that had flooded three times in three years was 13 when she moved from New Orleans to Houston. It's absolutely, there's a lineage also of disaster that we can talk about all of these kind of compounding disasters that people are experiencing and compounding forms of displacement. What makes displacement so hard, it's this loss of culture and this loss of history, these loss of bonds as communities are flung apart, but it has a spiritual or soul element to it as well. And that is absolutely irreplaceable once it's lost or, or broken. The conversation about displacement turned to strategies people were seeing to prevent it from happening over and over again in the aftermath of disaster. Zoe named one of the key challenges, how dull the government process can be. (laughs) It's not a joyous experience usually to participate. And it alienates people. And oftentimes, you know, the state is really telling you what to do, right? Telling you to leave your home. It's telling you to, you know, evacuate or get flooded or be evicted. An important role of community organizing is to transform and empower folks. So if you imagine a neighborhood without flooding, like what does it take to get there? And backwards plan from that. Organizing isn't just about being on the defense. It's about building a collective vision of what communities can be and figuring out how to get there. I've seen Councilmember Tarsha Jackson come up with ways to engage people around issues that other elected officials seem to have written off as hopeless. Flooding is really, really bad in our district. And of course, they never invested in the infrastructure. Every time it rains, I see a cloud in the sky, I get anxiety. And so the constituents, whenever it rains, we have them text us pictures of the flooding and we're documented. It ain't much raining and you see water bubbling up out of pipe, sewage. People shouldn't be living like this. I mean, we're getting somewhere. We just recently submitted a whole list to Public Works. I'm taking all of these projects, the long list of sidewalks, everything the district needs, and I'm going to my congresswoman, I'm going to my congressman, I'm going to these state representatives, and I'm like, y'all, we have to figure out a way to get the money. And I'm taking it to the mayor, too. Mm-hmm. We have to jump through hoops just mm-hmm. to even have a conversation about how we're going to get a sidewalk. The city refused to, like, invest the money where it needs to be invested. Mm-hmm. And that's in the people that need it the most. In September 2021, I went to City Hall for a housing committee meeting. Councilmember Jackson had alerted me that a drama was about to unfold. When I say laid it out, he laid it all the way out. That's he, what, yeah. He laid this out. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's something that we've been fighting for years. Chriselle recorded the meeting on her phone because she worried that the city would not make public what was about to happen in this public meeting. The city housing director sent comments outlining his refusal to go along with the mayor's support for a proposed development, where the mayor's former law partner happened to also be on the development team. 
This briefing breaks my heart to give you because I've committed the last five years to working hard to serve Houston and to ensure that we are working hard to address Houston's affordable housing crisis. This administration is bankrolling a certain developer to the detriment of working families who need affordable homes. There is a culture of do it because I said so. That kind of culture creates the breeding grounds for corruption. I'm being forced to participate in a charade that this was a competitive process when I know it was not a competitive process. I don't plan to resign, but I do expect that um, I will shortly be relieved of my responsibilities here in, at the city. Councilmember Jackson. Yeah, I just want to say thank you, um, Director, for just sharing your experience. It takes a lot to come out with this type of information. Um, it is overwhelming. But again, thank you for just being open. Appreciate you. Thank you, Councilman. The mayor immediately fired the housing director. The city had a process for considering proposals that would create the most affordable housing units. And the mayor circumvented that whole process and selected a project that didn't serve people who need that housing most. This was business as usual. But for the first time, a director spoke publicly and refused to support what the mayor had done. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're entering a new chapter in Houston politics for a couple of reasons. The housing director put his job on the line to demand transparency and accountability in addressing our city's housing crisis. And Tarsha Jackson's election symbolizes hope for so many of us. For me and my neighbors in Cashman Gardens, it feels entirely new knowing we have a representative at City Hall who really knows firsthand many of the challenges we face. Almost 40% of the people in our council district bring home under $25,000 a year. Our young people have limited educational and job opportunities. It floods every time it rains. Our grocery stores don't stock healthy food. And the rest of our city treats our district like a dump, like for real. And these are the issues Councilmember Jackson takes to heart. Councilmember Jackson understands her constituents because she is one of them. She was a single mom who became an advocate and organizer when her son got caught up in the juvenile justice system. He'd been diagnosed with serious mental illness, but he was doing well in elementary school until he reached the fourth grade. When he was just 10, his school administration had him arrested. You know, and of course, as any mother, you're going to fight for your child. And started advocating for my son and other kids and started organizing other parents and just like really trying to change the system. Councilmember Jackson worked hard to pass legislation that prohibits counties from jailing kids on certain misdemeanors and established the first ever Parent Bill of Rights. She helped return more than 2,000 kids home to their communities. And you had leaders, everybody that's in office today, Mayor Turner was state representative and nobody was speaking up. The state was getting paid $56,000 per year per child that they jailed, that they were warehousing kids across the state of Texas for money. But you shut it down. Yeah, we shut it down. <laughs> they messed with the wrong system. <laughs> yeah. And we have to start investing in these communities. You know, you've gone from advocate to now elected official. Mm -hmm. Now you're in there. Girl. And like, so what is it like now when you have advocates or, you know, that's trying to get something done? There has never like really been no true partnership with elected official and mm -hmm. community advocates. 
And so I don't think we know how to to do it. So I find myself like trying to call advocates to be like, hey, do y'all have any information on this? Or hey, do you have an expert to help with this? Now that there is a true champion on the inside, advocates like me are trying to figure out how to make that work for us. We're used to playing defense and I have to admit, I do it too. Another way Tarsha Jackson keeps connected is by riding her bicycle through the neighborhood. Not exactly a bike-friendly place. I can see more. I take in more of the neighborhood. You know, I can, it's like, you can not only see it, but you can, like, feel it and you can breathe it and identify whatever would need to be done. But it also is an opportunity for me to talk to the constituents and talk to the people, the normal people that we don't talk to or elected officials don't talk to. Do you have any particular, like, stories or, or something that's kind of sticks out in your mind? A particular constituent? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To? So I was riding up Greg Street. People mm-hmm. just come and they put their lawn chairs out, having a good time. And so I go over and I introduce myself. One of the fellas told me, nothing is going to change. And they get in office and then they don't do what they say they're going to do. So this was the one day. And then, you know, I rode again, ran up on him again. So he's like, all right, hello, Miss Jackson, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, I talked to him. Then the third time I see him, like, he said, all right, council member. All right, you got me. Okay, just let me know what I need to, how can I get involved? The same day that the housing director was fired, I attended another meeting where people commented to Mayor Turner and the city council about their experience of our ongoing housing crisis. I'm from Cashmere Garden area. Yes, My mother turned 88 years old, and all she's asking you all, she'd like to live comfortable before she leave this earth. FEMA didn't do anything. FEMA only gave us $600 a piece because we had to evacuate overnight. You can't get in touch with the state representative. You can't get in touch with anyone. So I call upon you all. We'll always see what we can do to uh, to us to assess. So you make sure. have somebody. I would love for somebody to come out to right. see. Councilmember Jackson. Thank you, Mayor, and thank you, Ms. Hankins, hey, for coming you? in. I want to work with you closely and work with the administration to make sure that you know your mom gets her home repaired. Okay. okay. And when was the last? When in order to fight systems, you have to understand how to navigate the system. You have to, but if you don't know, then that's how you get caught up. That's how you get neglected. Our communities are crumbling because we don't know, uh-huh. and it's our leaders that keep that knowledge from us. Yes, knowledge is power. So is transparency. And just as we know that communication with local representatives is important, we also know that decisions at the federal level directly affect our neighborhoods. So Ariadna and I worked with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition to bring our concerns to a congressional briefing. It's important that two advocates who see how things play out on the ground could engage leadership at the federal level. You know, it's been three years after the impact of Hurricane Maria, where 70,000 houses were destroyed. It's also been nine months after enduring several seismic events that have destroyed nearly 800 houses in the south of the island. We are able and we are responsible uh, to foresee the consequences of disaster. 
you know, there's a lot of, of talk and romanticism speaking about survivors, speaking about resilience. But the reality is that there is thousands of thousands of people that will never be able to recover from disasters if something is not done uh, from higher levels. I think it's important not to normalize how slow recovery is, uh, not after Katrina, not after Andrew, not after Maria, uh, and not now. In Puerto Rico, after Maria, we had a 60% denial rate uh, from Prima applications that left nearly 30,000 people without a roof. There was recovery money, but it wasn't being used. Close to $10 billion for long-term recovery, and two years later, the local government had spent less than 2%. We have to recognize the pervasive and inherent presence of structural racism and inequality in this system. But as long as disaster recovery does not intentionally address the plight of people of color and those neglected during the last disaster and the ones before that, then we're gonna continue to face a greater distortion in how communities truly recover. Recovery efforts must be intentionally inclusive and equity must be explicitly addressed at all stages of responsible recovery. I think of that during my conversations with my Texas Housers colleague, Erica Bowman. Talking with her is a reality check for me about the ways these systemic problems invade people's lives. I recorded a phone conversation we had during that scary ice storm that moved through Texas in February 2021. It left millions of people without electricity, without heat, during record temperatures well below freezing. People died because of this, and during the worst of it, Erica went to check on tenants and offer support. There's ice in their homes, pipes are bursting. They don't have anywhere else really to go. The shelters are completely packed. There's no food on the counter. There's no water in the stores. Still dealing with the pandemic, the children being home. This is just another level, another hammer thrown into their lives. Mm -hmm. So uh, this sounds like Hurricane Harvey, the winter edition. We slid a little bit from black ice, and that just terrified the girls. The trauma that's happening from even the Capitol rioting and, mm-hmm. and this storm and the pandemic. It's just really taking a toll on all of us. But I think about the kids. So that's why I'm loving and hugging on, on them mm. um, before getting back into the full grind uh, of work. Right. I've definitely seen people come together more, but and I'm hoping that that will you know, end up transcending into actual people power, political power that changes the dynamic, changes the, the structures that we see. And not, not by, you know, implementing a reform, but we have to mm. tear this thing down and rebuild it all over again. I have never been more sure in my life of anything that uh, change is happening right now mm-hmm. at a level that is definitely important. Erica's optimism and my own might seem misplaced given all the injustice we've described in this podcast. But here we were putting this story together in 2021 when I got a message from Erica with news about the lawsuit she and Zoe and and Jamie told us about in the last episode. Erica was overjoyed that the 12 Moms Group scored a win. They sued the Department of Housing and Urban Development over unsafe and unsanitary living conditions in the Coffer Tree Apartments. You'll remember that the sprawling complex flooded regularly and tenants were plagued by water damage. 
mold and sewage, among other problems. Hey, Chriselle and Zoe. I wanted to make a uh, special audio text for the two of you. I uh, hadn't yet got to talk to you guys about this the huge victory that just took place, of course, with Copper Tree. This Fifth Circuit ruling is pretty much saying that by law, you have no choice but to provide safe sanitary living conditions to these tenants under your own regulations, by the way. It's announcing to the, to the world of organizing, to all legal advocates, that now we can say when there's a notice of default that HUD has a responsibility of providing to tenants that are in these positions vouchers an opportunity to move out of these properties. But I just wanted to give you a special shout, sister to sister, that I love the two of you, and I thank you so much, and I hope all is going well for you. Erica's 3 a.m. message was more than 10 minutes long. She made clear that this successful campaign rested on the tenants' leadership and perseverance. This federal court ruling will have repercussions across the country. It means tenants, like Jamie, don't have to struggle with apartment managers who refuse to address public health nightmares, like the ones that threaten her children's health and quality of life and destroyed her belongings again and again. It puts responsibility squarely on the federal government to provide decent housing to these families. Throughout this podcast, we've shared stories of people and communities who work together to deal with challenges when a disaster strikes and when government officials fail to meet human needs. From the lack of proper translation for alerts, shelters, and escape routes when firestorms ravage towns as in Sonoma County and to Texas and Puerto Rico where mold and sewage spills destroy homes and the lungs of the young and old after deadly hurricanes. We hope you see the power of community and the cultures we come from. What happens when we all come together in collective action? Our cultural histories are built from our ancestors who suffered enslavement and colonization. Because of them, our communities were able to prevail. We do this work for our children, our young relatives, our grandchildren, our babies, for our future generations. Like those before us did for us, their resistance made us stronger. And though we may not see the outcomes in our lifetime, we know that we continue building with each generation. I love what artist and author Adrienne Marie Brown says, all organizing is science fiction. We are bending the future together into something we have never experienced, a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We're your hosts, Chriselle Pillay and Rose Arrieta. We produced this series with our senior producer, Leah Mahan, who edited this episode with story editor, Cheryl Duvall. 
Fernando Arruda wrote the music and mixed the sound. Thanks to Liana Lopez for sound recording and Rosalia Valencia Tao, our translator and archival researcher. But next time, it's part of the Rise Home Stories project, made possible by a grant from the Ford Foundation's Cities and States program. Joe Lou Productions and Working Films offered leadership and support. Executive producer, Luisa Dantas. Supervising producer, Paige Wood. Impact producer, Anna Lee and Julia Steele Allen. Associate producer, Kari Diallo. Special thanks to Amy Kenyon, Jerry Maldonado, and Lane Kaplan-Levinson. To learn more about the Rise Home Stories Project, please visit our site at risehomestories.com. For more about But Next Time, visit us at butnexttime.com. higher ground on making contact. Join us next week as we look at COVID-19 and the struggle for global vaccine access and possibilities moving forward. If you've enjoyed this episode, please write and review us twice on Apple Podcasts, and then please share with your friends and family via Facebook and on Instagram, we're making contact project. Also on Twitter, we're making underscore contact. To learn more about us and access other episodes for free, visit us at radioproject.org. The Making Contact team includes Jessica Partnow, Monica Lopez, Salima Himarani, Sabine Blazin, and I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.